Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 5, Episode 39, which, for me, was a super interesting episode. We had Jim Clemente on, and he not only helped us break down Part 3 of the Forgotten West Memphis 3 series, uh, but also really got into some in-depth discussions about his profile. And if you're this is the first episode you've ever listened to, uh, you can do a couple of things. One, at least go back to episode 537, I think, which was when we first started breaking down the TV series. If not, going all the way back to season five, where we have hours and hours and hours of content about the West Memphis 3 case. I am joined today remotely and virtually from NBI Remote Studio number one. See, I got it right this time, Mike. Remote Studio One is Zach Weaver. Hey, hey. And then from NBI Remote Two, we have Mr. Mike Bussey. Hey, everybody. What's up? All right. Well, we have, uh, we're going to go and get this thing started. Mike, Zach, and I have actually been on the, the phone for the last 40 minutes because we haven't talked in a week. So we're going to get into this content. We got a bunch of questions from you guys. And after a short break, we'll get right into them. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we get into the listener questions that Mike has for us, Zach, I, you know, last week, we, with all of our technical difficulties, we didn't get to hear a whole lot from you. Uh, so I want to kind of start off this week by asking you what you thought of not only part three, but of this week's episode with Jim. This week's episode was really interesting. I mean, it was, it was nice to hear from Jim. It was nice to hear him break down the rest of the episode. I mean, I like that he was going through his profile, but to hear him talk about the other things, which was really interesting because some of that stuff got skipped over in this show, you know where he was talking about George Taylor and, and why or why not he may have been the fourth boy. It was interesting to hear your guys' conversation about that. Yeah, and I was I was happy to hear that he had almost in the the exact same type of assessment that I had about George when, when in the fact that he seemed that he was really trying to please. So I, I was happy that he had the same assessment because Jim is the one that trained me on that stuff. So I feel like that was me being a good student because uh, he, he agreed with that. But yeah, you know, speaking of George, in the more and more I think about it, and Jim's talked about it, it's 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 fr- he's frustrating because I really think there's a good possibility that he actually was with the boys that day, that maybe he was part of that interaction with Narlene Hollingsworth, but just everything has just gotten so mashed up with these false memories that you can't. It's hard to separate what's a real memory and a false memory. Yeah, I gotta agree, and I think he possibly was part of that. That whole incident with Narlene Hollingsworth, there's some stuff that says he was basically, but like you said, his false memories kind of lead him down a different road. And especially like in the show where he pointed out the the completely wrong house, you know, if he really hasn't been there over time, maybe he doesn't remember the house. It, it is strange. You wouldn't remember your friend's house. I mean, I could tell you where all my friends live from when I was younger, but I, I just, I just don't know. It's hard to say with him. Well, you know, the house thing was interesting because, you know, there are people that are like, well, you know, of course those memories could fade. My my issue wasn't that he couldn't remember where the house because because again he wasn't he didn't just get the wrong house he was in the wrong end of the neighborhood he was nowhere near it and he remembered like where his house was I lived here and we used to play here and oh yep there's Stevie's house 
so the fact that he couldn't remember where the house was from didn't so much bother me because I know that he has been to Stevie's house in the past. But what what that that threw up a red flag for me was because that gave me kind of a baseline of how well he remembered that time frame. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so 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 there's a baseline where he's not trying to impress me. This is not anything that he's, you know, that that has been talked about where Stevie lived a lot, you know, it has been talked about but not necessarily in his circles. That's just a, a genuine reflection of how well he remembers that time frame. And then when I take that and then compare it to, yep, I was wearing green shorts and you know all these weird details that are in the reports and that's when I started like like these these don't match up. The same guy that that doesn't remember where his best friend lived shouldn't be the same guy that remembers that when he was eight years old, 26 years ago, he was wearing green shorts. Yeah, that is strange. Mm-hmm. Now, now moving on from that too, the other nice thing to hear Jim talk about was the Miss Kelly confession. That's something that, you know, we didn't really talk about on the show because you wanted to stay away from it on the, the TV show because it really wasn't about them. But it was nice to hear Jim's input on that because we really hadn't heard Jim's input. You've talked to other professionals about it, but to hear Jim's input was really nice too. Somebody, some one of the nons that can constantly messages me about how horrible I am for supporting these child murderers was like like went off, sent me some message going off about how you know I, I just cherry picked certain parts of Miss Kelly's interview for Jim Trainum on the TV show to look at. It's like, oh sure, if you just pick those little spots, then you can make it look like it was a false confession, and I was like. Well, the, I usually don't even respond, but I think I did respond with that. Was like, you weren't paying attention. I didn't pick the spots. He did. We sent him all of the recorded audio from Jesse Miss Kelly, and he. We told him, you know, to do an analysis, develop an opinion, and let us know what you think, and then try to pick out six or seven, you know, examples that you can play for that scene. So we have, you know, so you can you can explain how you came to the conclusions you came to. So that was so. Just to be clear, that was Jim Trainum choosing some of the elements of the the confession that he wanted to play for me as examples. And also, there were several more of them than what you saw on the show. I think we only saw two or three. Yeah, that was really interesting, and, and it was nice to hear Jim break it down, just as a listener, for sure. Oh, Jim, Jim uh, Clementi. Jim Clementi when he broke it down on the on this episode, the one we're recap. He's just there's something about that guy, man. That he's just I know he's got all the training, and a lot of people do. And behavioral analysis and psychology and 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 um, statement analysis and things like that, but a lot of people have that training. But there's just something about Jim that always seems to just cut through all of the I'll call it all the bullshit that's that that surrounds any type of situation or case like this. But he always seems to be able to cut right through it and then pull out that little piece that once he explains it to you, it's like a light bulb goes off. Like oh. That makes perfect sense. You know, almost like the, you know, what he said about Terry in part four, uh, Terry Hobbs, when he said that he, you know, he had the police go to the the Catfish Island instead of going to his house. You know, I never caught that before. And that gets explained. He's actually, Jim's going to make a return for this week's episode also, by the way. He's going to just just discuss a couple of things. And one is his assessment on the show where we talked about Terry Hobbs. So I don't want to get too much into that now because we're going to talk about it on Sunday. So going into the real reason you brought Jim on was to talk about his profile. And and I found it really interesting. It was nice to hear. It's very similar to the profile you broke down in the show previously, not on the TV show, but in the podcast previously. Yeah, a couple years ago. Which I thought was very interesting. Um, There's a lot of things he said that, 
you know, obviously that's why he does this because I wouldn't have thought of things like that. But it was really interesting. I, you know, one of the things that I wasn't sure about, and you guys talked about a little bit, was the the order the boys were were killed. And, and that was something mm-hmm. interesting to hear because I never would have thought about Michael Moore being killed first. Yeah, it, it, I, and honestly, as I said on the show, I was literally earlier that day, I was just going through documents and going through photos in the crime scene, and something just clicked to me. It's like, wait a minute, people have always said, and I think partially that's because the police thought Michael Moore must have tried away, tried to run away. And then they led Miss Kelly into saying, oh, that little one, the Michael Moore kid, he ran away because they were trying to ex- to get him to explain while, why Michael Moore was so much further away than the other two. Mm-hmm. And so for some, I kind of subconsciously always just assumed that's probably what happened. He was probably last. And then, yeah, something occurred to me. It's like it was and it partially was because of, you know, Jim explaining that this is probably one kid who was punished over punished and then the other two were witnesses to it and i didn't quite fully develop that thought on the episode but the more i've thought about it think about it, it makes more so say all three boys are there and he's you know and whoever the killer is say they've you know they've got a stick and they're threatening them you know the, you need to get back you know because i still believe it absolutely was somebody with a known personal relationship with them and an authority figure so somebody telling them what to do and and Michael Moore takes off or, or, or starts arguing or smarting off with him and he cracks him on the head. Well, then it's like now, especially, especially if that's not his kid, which Michael Moore's father was alibied. So, so he just in a fit of rage or, or, or unsub say hits Michael Moore and that's not his kid. Well, now he's in big trouble. I, I don't think that. I don't think that our, our unsa probably went after, if it was a parent, their own kid first, because the, something about that time frame of what we know about those families to me feels like, yeah, well, that's, you know, I, I did this to my kid and you kiss my ass. It's none of your business. But if they did something to someone else's kid, to me, that could be the triggering like, oh, shit, I'm in trouble now. I'm not, I'm not allowed to hit someone else's kid over the head. So now I'm in trouble. Yeah, see, that's I never would have thought of that way because I was thinking the other way that that if it was a known person, it, they would go after the the individual they were connected to, you know, primarily connected to. So, you know, we've gone through the other suspects, but like John Mark Byers, you, you think he'd have gone after his son or Terry Hobbs would have gone after his son or, you know, I mean, Todd Moore would have gone after his son. So it's it's strange to think that they would have gone after a different boy first, unless there was something wrong. Like you said, we have to think I, I don't believe as we said that this was premeditated. Mm-hmm. And so to me, and there's a lot of impulsivity that we see with this crime scene, you know, the, the fact that they used their own shoelaces for bindings and that they were concealed in the place they were concealed and all that, like all these things, as Jim has explained before, are, are indications that this was, that that's, that, that was just opportunistic. That's what was around there, which is an indication that this was an impulsive act. So, yeah, I agree. I don't think that any authority figure, you know, other suspect, just just to try to broaden the the scope here, you know, people have talked about Cub Scout leaders or or probation officers or whoever, but I don't think that they went after like, oh, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to crack this kid in the head or I'm going to drown this kid. I the way I see it going is they went, someone followed the kids there and was trying to get them back out of there that whether they were actually physically punishing them or not. I don't think they had the intention. I think that if Michael Moore was the first to be attacked, 
that it was a complete impulse that he, you know, as Jim said, what that's what you know, we, had, we got little indications from Jim that that's where his brain was at when he said, you know, which one was the wise ass, which one might have talked back, which one might have pushed back on him, into where like there's this impulse that's like, oh yeah, f you, whack, you know, just like it wasn't planned. He wasn't going after his kid. It was just this kid, this particular kid, just pissed him off to the point where he had a a, a brief momentary snap. It did something. It was like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have done that. So in Michael Moore's victimology, I mean, is there anything that kind of leans towards him being that like sassy kid or anything like that? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. You know, so it's in, in the original portraying of Michael, you know, it was that he was the Cub Scout and he was the leader of the group, which seems to be true. And having to do a deep, thorough look at victimology, and there's not and I'm not saying anything bad about the kid. But if you look further, he Michael Moore had i think that him and chris byers both suffer from what we would now call adhd okay he had problems he got into a lot of trouble he had, there's there's documents out there about you know his reports from school and his behavior issues so he actually was known for being defiant and for being you know mischievous and for kind of leading you know him and chris have been in trouble going you know starting a fire at the school you know, like at the in the out the playground, I think. So there, there's a lot to indicate. And then from a discussions with Don Moore's sister that, yeah, if there was it sounds like if there was a kid that was going this is kind of my breakdown of the victimology from all of the family members I've talked to and the documents I've read. I look at Stevie Branch was probably the most well behaved of the three. He was the least likely to break rules. He he definitely had a fear of authority. Um, you know, we're told from from family members that you know that, that that Terry was quite a disciplinarian with him, and usually he would try to avoid that. But he was also a little boy, so sometimes he would he wasn't able to, and he would he, even control his own impulses. Chris Byers and Zach, you know my son Parker very well. Yep. To me, Chris, from the way his is you know Mark Byers has described him to me, the way his brother Ryan has described him to me, and even the way Don Moore described him to me, Chris Byers is just like my son Parker, who suffers from pretty severe ADHD, where he's a sweet kid, doesn't want to cause any trouble, but just literally can't contain himself, mm-hmm. like just just can't can't contain his impulses, can't contain his his hyperactivity. He's not intentionally being defiant. It's just he's got a one-track mind, and it's it's like he's oblivious. So, like, if I tell Parker not to do something and then he does it, it's it's different than if I tell my son Quentin not to do something and he does it. If Quentin defies me and does something I told him not to do, it's because he's being defiant. Yeah. He's decided not to do that. Whereas with Parker, Parker may do the same thing, but it's more like he's oblivious. It has left his mind that I told him not to do it. He's not considering what the consequences are. It's just like he sees something he wants to do, so he does it. It's impulse control, which is, has a lot to do with ADHD, but has a very sweet sweetness about him. Very happy kid. See, you know, Ryan's told me his brother that that he would sing and stuff like that. I mean, I I, I broke down with Ryan sometimes when we were talking because he's like describing my son Parker. Is, see, he drives he drives his sister crazy, whose room is close to his, because when he gets up in the morning. He sings and dances <laughs> and jumps around and wakes everybody up because he just, even though he knows he's not supposed to. So anyway, that, to me, that's Chris. That's how I see Chris. Okay. I see Stevie is probably the the most well-balanced, not so much with the hyperactivity, more of a rule follower. 
and Michael seems to be kind of a combination of of my two boys. You know, where where he he definitely seems to have that kind of ADHD tendency, that hyperactivity, but he's also, according to his sister, they had a kind of an abusive family. I don't know the word I'm looking for. In their family, there was some abuse that went on there, some physical abuse uh, that she considered to be over the top. That's just that's allegedly that's just what she says. But but Michael tended to be a big personality. Mike Michael tended to be the one, as Jim said, the wise ass, the one that would smart off, and that even though he he had the issue of of having some impulse control, at the same time he was likely to intentionally be defiant. That was that was his type of personality. So it fits the theory pretty well then if you, if we kind of go along that which means more so than in my head now you're thinking the whoever this is has more connection with Stevie Branch or Christopher Byers. Maybe. I mean yeah, it, to me I think so but I mean that's not to say that it wasn't somebody that was intentionally going after Michael Moore, but I also think that because it was Michael and because of what we know about his personality and victimology, I think that we we need to consider the fact that Maybe he wasn't the target, but it was his attitude and personality that caught the attention of the unsub, who then turned his anger towards Michael when maybe it wasn't originally intended to go that direction. All right, our first question comes from Matt. I was greatly impressed by Jim's insight into how the three boys were controlled, given their submissive nature when it comes to punishment, especially Stevie and Christopher. Bob, have you ever given much thought into the crime being carried out by two or more individuals, or do you think that would have been more difficult to conceal after all these years? I, I don't think there was more than one individual, and part of it's because of that. I don't think that it would it would remain concealed this long. It's just you know, as I've said before, the only way to really keep a secret is if you're the only one that knows it. It's just in general, human nature. Um, after 26 years and all this attention, you know, I think that somebody finds out there's more than one person. But that's that's more semantics and behavior stuff. Uh, but if you look at just just the the physics of the crime scene, uh, it, nothing on that crime scene indicates there was more than one person there. And the thing that I come back to the most is how consistently the co- body concealment was done on all three boys. Meaning, all three boys were stripped completely nude. All three boys were tied in a very strange way, and and th- that's the big one to me. Is so so look at the way they're bound. Right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to left ankle. That's not a normal way to tie people up. It's, as Jim has said, that's not a way that's going to restrain anyone. That is, is in my theory years ago, and Jim Jim is, concurs now that he's looked at it, is that that had much more to do with body concealment. So imagine the three of us were doing something like this, and I said, okay, you guys, you, you grab that one, you grab that one, you grab that one, tie them up. I'm not going to tell you, Zach, I want you to tie his right wrist to his right ankle and his left wrist to his left ankle and give that same directive to you, Mike, and I'm going to do it. That is, that's bananas. That would never happen. So what would happen is it would say, we need to tie him up, hog tie, you know, tie, tie their wrist to their ankles. Guys, go. And to think that all three boys would all be tied up in this very weird, unorthodox way that is, that is not effective for anything other than, than, than tightening down the, the package of the body. I think it's unreasonable to think that three different people tied those boys in the same way. And everything is consistent. They're stripped completely naked. They're tied up in the same way. They're pinned down into the water the same way. All of their clothing is is pinned down the same way, wrapped around six, jammed down into the mud. Everything about it's just consistent throughout. Everything about that crime scene indicates that this was one 
individual. One person carried out all of that concealment. Amber says, not a hugely important question, but something I thought of while listening to the episode. Were any of the boys scared of water? Also, were the killings meant to punish one of the boys and it went too far? Yeah, well, we kind of covered the punishment party. I, I definitely, that's my theory. That's Jim's theory. Uh, as far as being afraid of the water, it's a good question. I don't know. It, it's been stated that Christopher was afraid to go over to those woods. I don't recall, I, don't quote me on this, but I don't recall any anybody saying that the any of the boys were afraid of water. I know that the the buyers had a pool. Uh, so I know that, you know, Christopher actually swam in the pool. I think that, um, Stevie had been in that pool or other pools. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any indication that the boys were afraid of water. Jeanette says, was Todd Moore's alibi verified? I thought I heard on the podcast that the police didn't really check it out and that Todd may have had a meeting with another scoutmaster that day. There are some documents that indicate there was from one of the, the scout leaders or something that had talked about scheduling a meeting that Wednesday might have been, I think, later in the evening. I, I don't know. Uh, but what I do know is that Dana Moore at the time was convinced her husband was at work. Dawn Moore, when I then and now when I've talked to her, was convinced her husband was, was at work. I don't think that the West Memphis police, at least on record, I think Todd Moore has said publicly that the West Memphis PD did, in fact, check his like trucker log to make sure of where he was at. But th- there's no those document. It was never documented well, and I think there was. I think that's a problem with a lot of things. You know, it could could be that Terry Hobbs even was was spoken to more than we know, because there seemed to be a very nonchalant attitude, laissez faire attitude from the police when they were speaking to family. Meaning they did. You know, if they, when they went around w- interviewing witnesses, they were documenting that. They were writing reports. They were taking notes. But it seemed like they would pop in and talk to the family, like that's like how Todd Moore has said things went with him. You know that yeah, they talked to me, they asked me where we at, and you know, here's my logs. I was trucking, okay, and they just didn't write a report on it because they, of course, they didn't know that this case was going to be picked over for decades and decades after the fact. But I have not seen any, I've not seen anything to the contrary, nothing to indicate a that Todd Moore wasn't. In fact, driving a truck down in Louisiana at that time, there's nothing to indicate that that's not what was happening. Uh, and there's also nothing to indicate that Todd Moore really fits this profile at all either. You know, the one thing you talked about with this case that you you kind of just brought up was Jim said, you know, that it's not just this police department wasn't ready for this, which is a big thing, how inept this investigation was by, you know, like you said, if they didn't make notes about Todd Moore or whatever. Because they were swamped. They had no idea what was going on. And this station wasn't just that this station wasn't ready for it. No station was ever ready for this. You know, this has never happened. That was something that Jim said that really struck me that just because this this police department wasn't ready doesn't mean any police department was ready because it was such a heinous act that has never happened ever. Right. And and somebody, I think somebody responded either on Twitter or, or somewhere that well, there has been a triple murder, triple homicide of of three young kids somewhere in Chicago in the fifties or something like that. I don't remember what it was from, but it apparently, from what I've seen and from what Jim has said, there's never been a documented case where three unrelated children were all murdered. Yeah, and if there and if there was if there was a case where there was multiple children from other from different families. They were killed. It was it was along the lines of what he he says happened here, where one kid was murdered, 
and then the other two were, you know, the the other one or the other two were, were killed because they were a witness. Now, there's been certainly several instances where where three minor children or more have been killed at once, but they're always related. It's a you know, it's it's a it's a parent that flipped out and drove their car into the you know, pushed their car into a lake or drowned them in a bathtub. We've heard those stories, but not like this. Not where just three unrelated eight year olds were murdered as a triple homicide. It's just never happened before. Brittany says, if the killer threw the bikes in the bayou as part of concealment, why would he not try to erase the bike tracks that were near the pipe, just like he tried to remove evidence on the ditch bank? Well, I think because he was out in the open. So if, if you look at the crime scene, if you actually look at the crime scene photos and some of the aerial photography that, that took place back in 93, once the unsub exited the, the wooded area where the boys' bodies were found, there's a path that they have to take to get to the pipe bridge. It's only 30, 40, 50 feet, but it's in the open. So anybody at the Mayfair Apartments and that last building in the Mayfair Apartments would have, has a clear view of that pipe. The people in, whose houses are along the back of the bayou there could see that person coming out of those woods. And, you know, then you would dip down. Mike, Mike you remember being there. You know, if you dip down onto the pipe itself, you'd kind of disappear for a second. Yeah. But but then as soon as you come back up on the other side of the pipe where the bikes were, you're I mean you're right there. You can look up and see at the time. You could look up and see the Mayfair the windows of that apartment building. So I think at that time they're probably crouched down, tossed them in, and they're they're just not going to spend any more time right there than they than they have to because they are now vulnerable. They are now in clear view. Also, by the way, once they're on that side of the pipe. They're in clear view of the Blue Beacon truck wash and the truck stop. People could see them over there once they were on that back on that side of the bayou. Keep in mind, too, those tire tracks, which you're going to hear a lot more about those tire tracks next week. We heard a little bit in part four, uh, David Jacoby saying about the tire tracks that went there, but so much of that interview was, was removed or didn't make the final cut. But th- those tracks, they followed them all the way through the Robin Hood woods. So, it's, I mean, how far are you going to go? You know, and they're on a path. So as soon as you lose them, you keep following them. So I think that, but I think that once the unsub got across the pipe, knew they had to lose those bikes, quickly tossed them into the water and got the hell out of there. They weren't going to spend one more minute around that crime scene than they had to because they, number one, they knew they couldn't be seen or they were screwed. And they probably weren't sure if they had already been seen at that point. Jenny says, can we get some clarification on the autopsy report references to the abrasions and contusions and hemorrhages, etc., at the ligature sites? All three autopsy reports refer to contusions at the ligature sites, but you mentioned only hemorrhaging as evidence that the ligatures were tied while victims were alive. Yeah, so in the autopsy reports on all three, there's indications of abrasions and some slight contusions around the the wrist the ligature sites so the reason i said that only michael moore had that should that looked like he could have been alive when this happened uh, was from further analysis done by werner spitz and by our dr rebecca shu and there's um other reports too i'm working from memory now that were like microscopic slides of the tissue that was done by dr peretti back in 93 and and what they're looking for is if there was hemorrhaging, if there was if there was tissue damage that showed reactivity and hemorrhaging, because you will get you could still get bruising, you can still get abrasion after death, but what you can't get is 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 hemorrhaging. And um, I'm 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 not pulling the right 
term that I'm looking for right now. But basically showing damage to the cells, to live cells underneath the, the skin when they actually take a cross-section of the injury. And and the conclusion that Dr. Shu came to, and I believe Werner Spitz, and even Peretti in is not, it's, I don't think it's in the autopsy. It's in another, another report, uh, or maybe even in trial testimony where they talked about looking for hemorrhaging. There was no hemorrhaging that happened around those sites that you would expect from an actual ligature. For, it doesn't take long. You put a ligature around somebody's wrist when they're alive and they move, it is immediately, it, it's breaking and crushing the, the cells underneath there and there's immediate hemorrhaging. That's why you usually see dark, dark, dark purple marks around uh, ligature marks if they were applied before somebody was somebody was dead. And so the beyond just the basics of the autopsy, the if you continue to look into the evidence, again, I'm trying to pull off memory. I think it might have been from Peretti's trial testimony, but also the uh, the analysis by Dr. Warner Spitz and the analysis by Dr. Shu were that Stevie Branch and Chris Byers' ligatures don't show any indication that they were on them when the boys were still alive. That there there are some abrasions, there are some contusions, but that's all post mortem activity. And it was on Michael Moore. And I think if I if I remember correctly, it was only one of the wrist ligatures, maybe just the wrist, not the ankles, on Moore that did show some some in the the slides and the cross section they took of it that did show some evidence that he may have still had a heartbeat and may have still been alive when those ligatures were applied. So in layman's terms, you're basically saying that. A live cell reacts different than a dead cell would to this. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. So, like, if if you took a a body that was recent now, if, it, if if the body had been you know had been deceased for a long period of time, lividity had set in, and the coagulation of the blood, this wouldn't happen. But so if somebody's dead, and then say within you know ten twenty minutes, you took a rope and tied it and just squeezed it real tight around their wrist, it's going to break cells. It's going to break open those cells, even though the cells are dead, and then. If you if you then all you have to do is put that location, say it was a wrist, and put it below the heart, gravity is going to move blood down to that area, and so you will get some discoloration there, even though it was applied after the after the the person was deceased. But if you do the same thing when the person's still alive and they still have blood pressure and their heart is still pumping, there'll be there'll be much more bleeding around the area, much more hemorrhaging. And you'll be able to see that the the live living cells were reacting to that injury. It looks very different. I'm not a doctor, so I can't tell you exactly the difference. I can only tell you that it's been explained to me by doctors that there is a difference. Perfect. All right, jumping back to Carlos Seals from last week. Mem wants to know if any of the parents reported sleeping bags missing. No, that's a, that's a good point, actually. So, and somebody else too I'd seen on Twitter had mentioned that you know maybe the reason the sleeping bags if they existed weren't there is because you can't sink a sleeping bag um uh, I've never tried but it makes sense but I guess you know typically you know, they're filled with feathers and they're kind of sealed that's, that's part of what helps you keep warm inside of them but it would seem like it would be impossible to get a sleeping bag to sink into the water so that may be a reason why the unsub may have taken the sleeping bags with but then to contrast that we have this question was it mem you said was the name yes uh, the, the, the mem asks is, is no, as far as I know, none of the parents, at least not the time, you know, had reported any sleeping bags missing. Now I'll add to that, the caveat that there's a lot of memory manipulation here. There's a lot of 
different motivations for saying different things. And I only point that out because I don't know. It may have been somewhere along the line. Somebody might have said, oh, yes, there was sleeping bags. Might have been 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later. But that's what we've seen with, you know, even when we talked about the the medical evidence about the the food in Stevie Branch's stomach, you know, years later, after that evidence kind of came to light and was discussed, you know, Pam Hobbs says, oh, well, I had made green beans and sat them out for Stevie because that was his favorite food, it, which may be true. But it, it, it's also similar to what we're talking about with like George Taylor. It's easy to that your brain will fill in those gaps. So if somebody tells you, especially if this is a traumatic time for her, so memories aren't great anyway, that, hey, well, there's evidence that Stevie ate green vegetables. Did you have any green vegetables? Did you maybe have green beans? Oh, green beans were his favorite. You know, I had green beans set out. You know, and then those those stories just they they tend to snowball. And you know, whether it's it, we've seen it with Pam Hobbs, Pam Hicks, we've seen it with John Mark Byers. If you track the lineage of every version of the story he's told over the years, some of that I think is intentional. Some of it I think is unintentional. That that as soon as somebody puts a new bug in his ear, that his brain converts that into how does this fit into my memories, and then all of a sudden a new memory is born from it. So I'm saying that as I don't, I feel like somewhere along the line, somebody said, might've been John Mike, Mark Byers, might've been nobody. I don't really remember, but I feel like somewhere along the line, someone said, oh yeah, we did have sleeping bags missing, but I also don't know that we can necessarily rely on that because it, it's, it's a matter of memories shifting to fit known evidence or, or suspected evidence. You know, the one thing that this makes me think of is my own child. You know, I, I have a nine-year-old and he rides his bike around. If he has a jacket on, he'll just take it up and like ball it up. So it's easier for him to carry. So, you know, that makes me think of what if one of the kids had a coat they had just balled up. So it was easier for them to carry. And they told Carlos Seals they were going camping. So he just, he just assumes that's a sleeping bag. Yeah, that's a possibility too. I mean, it was pretty warm out that day. So I don't, I don't remember the exact temperature, but I feel like it was in the seventies or low eighties, but that's, that's a possibility too. There's a whole lot of things that, you know, when, when people start giving you details, 15 years, 20 years after the fact, you have to take them with a grain of salt. You have to see if there's any corroborating evidence to support it. And it's just the sleeping bag detail, is just one we don't really have any corroborating evidence. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we can't say that it did happen. Amy says, I was hoping you'd discuss a mark on Stevie's leg that appears to have a rebar pattern. Not sure if it was a bruise or a lividity mark. Have you seen this picture? It has always baffled me. Yeah, I've seen it. And that that comes from one of the the theories on the case, I think I mentioned it even last week, the manhole theory. In my opinion, and I'm and I'm not I'm not trying to to put down anybody that thinks this theory is legit. You could be right, I could be wrong. I'm certainly no expert. But, but to me, I've looked at those injuries. I'm trying to remember back. I think if you look, they looked like they were scratches. You know, we had we had um Dr. Shu and and uh Dr. Newman Lee look at every single injury on the boys. And you heard Dr. Newman Lee say that. Every injury, except for the head injuries, look like turtle activity. That injury was included in that. So I'm trying to remember if it was like scr- it could be scratches or whatever it was. But but what happened, it, to me, what's, what's happened there is someone developed this theory about that the boys were murdered and then put into a manhole, and then the killer later came back and took them out of the manhole and and put them into the creek to conceal them. And there was there were rebar steps in the manhole, and so somebody said, "Oh, that injury could be from that rebar. It could be uh, lividity or whatever." 
And so it, it seems to fit. And like I said, maybe that's right. Maybe it's wrong. Did, did I talk about the manhole theory last week or not? Because I don't want to. I don't want to get into it too much if I've already talked about it. You know, we've we've said manhole theory, but I don't think it's ever been explained what it was or anything about it. Okay, so so that that was the that was the basics of it. It was that they were. I don't even know the entirety of the theory, but basically uh, that the boys were killed. They were put into this manhole, which is near the crime, the the discovery site, and then they came back and took the boys out and put them into the mud later. And it's a theory that, in my opinion, was developed to try to include a suspect that people liked for the for the crime that otherwise couldn't have fit. You know, the, the, you know, the, the time frames didn't work for this person, but if they'd killed them, stuffed them in a manhole, and came back later and put them in the creek, then it would work. But again, the, the, the basics of why I don't think that's possible are very simple. If you go, it, it's kind of, again, that Occam's razor thing, but you know, the, my, and again, 100% acknowledging I could be wrong here, but, but my read on the crime scene is that it happened there was an opportunistic and impulsive thing that they were killed. They were, they were, the bodies were concealed in order to give the unsub time to create an alibi. I think that was done because the person had a known personal relationship to the boys and people would expect him to be there with them. And he probably thinks people saw him going into the woods with the boys. And that's why this concealment happened. But in order for, if we look at the behavior of if that's what happened, what does that mean? That means that they were concealed and concealed well, very well in that manhole. No one ever searched the manhole. So that, that, that concealment would have worked. But then later on, sometime in the night, while people are searching, some, someone would have taken, okay, well, here is a quick break in the action. There's nobody out here right now. You have to assume or, or hope no one's coming back to that area. And then you go back, open up the manhole, crawl in there, and pull all three boys back out and haul them back into the woods where everyone's searching and stuff them into the water. And then also all of their clothes, whether they were naked in the manhole of the theory, I don't know, or if their clothes were just stashed in there. But then uh, then take their clothes off or take their clothes with them and shove it all in the mud. It just, it just, I cannot make sense of that. I cannot say that I think that's a plausible theory. Personally, but if you, but if there's, there's, I'm sure there's more to it than that, but I just don't believe in any theory out there. I don't believe the boys were moved to that location from another location. I think they were killed right there and that's where they were, their bodies were concealed. I guess the one thing I don't understand is if, if that is what happened, why wouldn't you just leave them in the manhole? That's, that's the thing that kind of gets to me. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm what I what I meant when I said that you know that was concealment that worked. You had concealment achieved. There is zero reason, exactly like you said, there's zero reason to go back and take it now what was a risk what was a big risk before is now a monumental risk because now everyone is looking for those boys in that area to go back and take them out of a concealment that already has proven to work cuz nobody's found them yet. And then transfer them out somewhere to where they could later be found. It's just, I don't think so. No, thank you. Not for me. Danielle says, I've heard reports of the police having a necklace belonging to Damien that is one of the boys, I think Stevie's, blood on it. Is that true? No. Well, that, that's touted by, in, in, in my opinion, in desperation when it comes down to trying to hold on to something to indicate that the West Memphis Three are guilty. Uh, it was it was seen in a, in a deleted scene 
from Paradise Lost. I don't know if anybody even actually has the DNA reports from it. But after the trial had started, supposedly they found this necklace at Damien Eccles' house, and it had a couple dark spots on it. They tested those spots and determined that there was blood and that there were two different profiles on them. One of the types matched Damien Eccles' blood type, and then one of the other the other type of blood on there matched. It was consistent with Stevie Branch's blood type. It was also consistent with Jason Baldwin's blood type. It was also consistent with about a million other people or more's blood type. It wasn't a DNA analysis. It was it was just something saying that this spot on this thing could have come from Stevie Branch. I don't honestly know what has ever happened with that since. I have to believe that if they ever that if this you know when all of the controversy started coming up and all of this different evidence was being tested, that if there was anything whatsoever to do with with that that necklace, the blo- supposed blood on the necklace, then the state would have grabbed it, got a full DNA profile with newer technology and shown exactly who it was because they would have loved to have been able to show. I mean, I mean that that would be hor- I mean that that's pretty undisputable evidence. If you found Stevie Branch's blood on Damien Eccles' necklace that was found at his house, it's hard to say that Stevie that Damien Eccles didn't kill Stevie Branch. I mean, there's really no way around that. So I, I don't believe it at all that that was actually Stevie Branch's blood on there. If it was, or if there was even a possibility that it was, the state would have fully tested that, gotten a full DNA profile, and in fact, if memory serves. I don't particular. I'm not, I'm not sure about this, but if memory serves, I think that during the trial that had been sent off by the state for further testing, so they could find out if it was Stevie Branch's blood. And of course, we never hear anything from it. But if you if you talk to any of the nons, they'll tell you Stevie Branch's blood was found on Damien's necklace. That is not true. And by the way, those are the same people that will say that there's nothing to indicate that it was Terry Hobbs' hair found in the binding. Because it only, you know, it's only a one in nine hundred chance that it was him. But those same people will say that because of blood type matched, which also matched Jason Baldwin, which by the way, the I believe that was actually Jason's necklace that Damien had, that, that will say that means that was Stevie Branch's. And it's just not true. It, it's all we all we know it, and and again, I don't even know if there's necessarily documents from it. What we know from that deleted scene from the documentary was that supposedly it had uh Stevie Branch's blood type which also happened to be the same as Jason Baldwin's blood type. Angel says, if known, what do we have of the sticks used to submerge the clothing, etc.? To me, these are the best possibility for getting a usable result using MVAC. I've read different info as to what was collected and remains. Thanks. Yeah, I am very certain that most, if not all, the sticks are still in evidence, and that is definitely something that Susanna Ryan requested that we test with the MVAC. She believes that even though those were submerged, I think that part was on the show where she said that, you know, she said that I'd want to test the sticks too. And I, cause I was like, well, they've been, they were in the water, they were in flowing water. And she said, she's, she's had experience with situations like that and they can still pull DNA. She further had explained to me that because the sticks are a rough material, there's a lot of nooks and crannies in them, you know, where the bark was and things like that. So number one, it's very likely for your skin to get to, your skin cells to come off and get wedged into two little nooks and crannies on the sticks, first of all. And secondly, because they're down in those nooks and crannies, they tend to be protected from the water. So, you know, if if we get Ellington to agree to send the DNA off or the evidence off for DNA testing, you know, my opinion, I'm hoping that that I can count on all of you 
if we get Ellington to agree and to send this evidence off to the lab that because you know it's going to have to be those tests are going to have to be paid for and we're going to have to pay for it and and my thoughts are if that ever happens that we test everything this could be our last chance and that we raise the funds to test every single item possible and the sticks would most definitely be one of them all right bob that's going to do it this week for questions all right and everybody make sure you tune in on sunday uh as i mentioned we're going to break down this will be the last part of our series of breaking down the forgotten west memphis 3 tv series Part four breakdown happens on Sunday. Uh, Jim Clementi is not along for the whole ride, but he definitely makes two appearances because I have him discuss uh, his thoughts on Terry Hobbs that we saw in part four. And also we saw a little bit of David Jacoby. As I've mentioned before, I have two hours of exclusive interview with David Jacoby that are going to be airing over the next couple of weeks. I had Jim take a look at those videos so that he could give us a little bit of a breakdown on his thoughts on David Jacoby before you get to listen to those interviews. All of that's going to be included this Sunday. So make sure you tune in. Hopefully all of you are staying safe. Zach, Mike, take care of yourself, guys, and we'll see you next week. Sounds good. Likewise, guys. See you, guys. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.
Let's do that clap after three. One, two, three. Got it. Got it. Clapped it. Spiked it. <laughs> That's right.